We've been learning in these last few days that these divine abodes, in particular the experience of metta, isn't so much something that we do as much as it is a capacity that we wisely uncover and take care of, cultivate, like an inherent capacity to be loving, be kind, have that goodwill. And then with the quality of mudita, this one of the four divine abodes, one of the four beautiful qualities of the heart, being able to appreciate what's beautiful and good. It's also something that is a natural capacity. But, you know, we have habits, like the habit of being having a critical mind. We could be here in this room, looks like most of us have our eyes open, and we could be observing you know, what we think is off about the room, not enough room in the room, for example, or whatever it might be. Or we could be noticing what's beautiful. And it's useful for, you know, just in terms of getting to know the mind and the way our heart and mind has been conditioned. It's just good to know when you walk into the dining room, what is it that the mind notices and attends to? Do you sense the very actually obvious harmony of our community? You know, that somehow a group of 30 mostly strangers, we come together without doing much talking and live so harmoniously for these days. I mean, that can be noticed. How we take turns, how we take care of each other, give each other space, how we clean up after ourselves so somebody else doesn't have to. You know, and just even, maybe in a more subtle way, just sensing the wholesome intentions that got us here. You know, like folks who are interested in their own heart and mind, interested in taking care of their own heart and mind, as a gift all around. I mean, there's so many things to appreciate. Or when we walk in the woods, oh, that's a rotting log. <laughs> I recently, uh, someone gave me a book by, uh, it's an author I really appreciate, Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's an indigenous, uh, indigenous woman and a professor of botany or forestry, something like that, out in Syracuse, New York, and it's written a couple books. The first book is uh, rewriting, I think, of her dissertation, and it's all about mosses, which is really, I just found just beautiful. And it, she's weaving together sort of Western science about plants, and there's a lot new in terms of how scientists understand trees and mosses and interweaving indigenous wisdom with kind of Western scientific knowledge. And her other, even better known book is called uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, which is just a wonderful book. But one of the things about reading this book on mosses is, you know, here is somebody who so delights, so appreciates the wisdom of mosses and understands, you know, and so doesn't see a moss she doesn't like. <laughs> and then there are those of us, you know, who are thinking, well, the forest would look a lot better if there wasn't all this droopy moss everywhere, hanging on branches, you know, and it just causes the trees to rot faster because it holds the moisture. I mean, someone's got to clean up this mess. So let's just do a little reflection for five minutes, seven minutes or so, and you don't have to close your eyes. And just to get a better sense, 
that there is this capacity to be appreciative. It's a kind of joy to appreciate what is what the heart is able to appreciate. Do we have right here and now the capacity to bring to mind what's good and to appreciate it? Wherever, however you can find it. It's kind of a contest, <laughs> except you won't get graded. But you know, using your imagination, using all your senses, what is it that's here and now worthy of appreciation. So I'll just be quiet and you can just explore. Okay, if you feel like a deer in headlights. But it often is very obvious things like a group of people sitting silently. That's something to appreciate. Being in a room where I'm guessing most of us feel pretty safe together. Don't have to watch your back. These teachings, being part of this lineage of wisdom and love, one generation after another that somehow human beings were able to get in touch with these teachings, put them into practice, realize what the teachings were pointing to well enough that they could live and express and share the fruit of their practice so that the next generation could hear it and practice it and benefit from it and pass it along. That's something to appreciate. Sometimes I think of the lineage of this wisdom, you know, that we associate with the Buddhist teachings. It's it's like the epitome of human common sense. And then whatever, whenever you find something that's worthy of appreciation, there's a sense of, like, what do we do when we're in touch, aware of something that is worthy of appreciation? And, you know, the short answer is we pay attention to it. Oh, this is worthy of appreciation. And then that, like, willingness to be sensitive to what is beautiful and good, often seeing it in another, but hopefully seeing it in ourselves. But when we are in touch and acknowledge something that is worthy of appreciation, something that's good, then there's just a, a natural movement, just like we've been discovering with metta. Well, may this continue, may this increase, may this never end. And you don't, of course, need to use that particular phrase, but that upwelling, that appreciation, there's a kind of feedback, appreciating something worthy of appreciation sets joy in motion. Oh, and so when we say something like, may it continue, may it increase, may it never end, it's not making something happen. In a way, it's describing something that's happening. That's what joy does. It's, there's so many examples. You know, it's interesting because as Kamala mentioned, in her talk on compassion, there's a appropriate and uh, liberating emphasis on cultivating 
a deep, honest relationship with dukkha, with the unsatisfactoriness of life. It's, it's often what draws people to the Buddhist teachings is they're looking for somebody who knows a thing or two about this unsatisfactory nature that we sense as we live our lives. There's a funny article, uh, there used to be a journal for the Vipassana and Set Meditation community called Inquiring Mind, and Wes Nisker, who's a spirit rock teacher, was one of the editors, and he had a column, usually at the back of the journal, which came out maybe every season, four times a year, for many years, several decades, before it stopped publishing it, maybe five or ten years ago. But uh, one of his articles was this uh, debate, or, you know, he was, it was always funny, his articles, but it had to do with the Dharma, but always funny, and about whether one is a firster or a thirdster, somebody who really likes aligns with the first noble truth, there is dukkha in life, right? Or you're one of the thirdsters who really align with, there's an end to dukkha in life, <laughs> or in practice. And uh, yeah, and just to kind of be honest about that, it's, you know, part of what allows us to have a more honest relationship with dukkha is that we're not afraid of joy. And interestingly, you know, we're, we can be afraid of joy because it challenges, like, interestingly, we like our negative dramas. They're, they're juicy, like the world sucks, you know. I can get behind that. <laughs> and, it, and it sort of, the world may suck according to my belief, but at least I know what's true. You know, this sort of arrogant certainty, like, I've got this conviction, and that, that makes me feel real as a self. It, in a way, it can, on the surface, provide some solidity. But, you know, it's really the ultimate deal with the devil, like this fixed idea. And, you know, it's not that much better to think in rosy tones that the world is great. Because both of those fixed stances take an ongoing defense. You know, we basically have to massage reality to fit our view that either things are great, or life sucks, or is bad, or something like that. I remember Saida Utejaniya, one of our teachers, uh, asking a group of teachers as we were interviewing with him, put us all on the spot, is the Dharma optimistic or pessimistic? And then he'd sort of stare at people until they committed. <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs down. And nobody, everyone knew it was a setup. And just trying to avoid having to commit. <laughs> I sort of cowered down so I didn't, because I, I, I knew I didn't want to be embarrassed, right? And get it wrong. So I just sort of waited because I knew he'd give us the answer. And he says, neither. It's realistic. And having this realistic approach to life means when there's something beautiful, when there's something good, then the heart understands, acknowledges, this is good. This is a thing of beauty. It should be appreciated. There's nothing wrong in appreciating this. And this is uh, a beautiful little story in the suttas about the Buddha-to-be as a young boy under the rose apple tree, and many of you have heard the story, I'll just say it briefly, but it's probably some kind of festival day there in northern India, and his father, the Buddha's father, was like the chief of the local fiefdom, and it was maybe a spring plowing festival, you know, and then the head of the clan does the first ceremonial plowing of the field, something like that, <coughs> scholars speculate. And they had the little boy, the prince-like person, sitting under a tree, maybe a little fence to keep the little boy, but because it was a festival day, people weren't working like they maybe usually did, it was 
going to be a big feast, maybe there was music, who knows, but it was a happy day. And the little baby grooving on the positive energy in the community. And because of the, probably because of the inclinations of this little boy, having lots of wholesome spiritual inclinations, the Buddha-to-be's heart just settled into a beautiful state of absorption, concentration, the hindrances, the defilements, went far into the background, lots of bliss and peace, rapture. And the story was told uh, because during the Buddha's practice, before his deep insight, awakening, he uh, had been doing a lot of ascetic practices and finding them not really leading to the full unshakable release. And as it happens sometimes, these sort of teachers appear, like this memory of this time when he was whatever he was, let's just say four years old, sitting under the rose apple tree, and just the bliss and the pleasure of a peaceful, concentrated mind that's not entangled with likes and dislikes, really just grooving on the wholesome energy, which is pleasant, and then the pleasantness of grooving on the wholesome community energy, being aware of the pleasantness, that too is pleasant, it's even more pleasant. And it's like a inner feedback loop, a little bit like the opposite of a panic attack, if any of you've had a panic attack, <laughs> right? Where we're feeling a little anxious, and the mind that concentrates, oh yeah, I'm anxious. And then that just amplifies the anxiety and then the mind, the knowing mind, notices the amplified anxiety and it appears bigger until you feel like we're about to die or explode or something, right? Those of you who've had panic attacks know this. But it works the other way too, where the, the wholesome pleasure, whatever the beginning of it is, uh, a settled mind, of course, is going to be interested in that inner wholesome pleasure which it will amplify it, and it just builds. And the mind is able then to let go of the grosser aspect of the world, the world of the senses, let's say. And that really helped the Buddha, you know, told this story because he saw it as a real shift in his practice. And then as the, you know, legends or stories of the Buddha's own awakening go, which uh, come from his own telling, you know, it was shortly after that where he had his night under the Bodhi tree. Because he, he understood, basically my interpretation, he understood how to use that pleasure, not to be afraid of that real pleasure. And I think that's sort of the purpose of mudita as a meditation practice, and just generally understanding the role of joy on the path. And if you read a lot of the suttas and, and just in the tradition, you see that there are a lot of descriptions of joy. It's not all, <laughs> we think it's all about, you know, the negative torments of the mind, the, the qualities of our heart and mind that haunt us and torment and <clears throat> cause us to spin and plant more seeds of suffering in our lives, in our own heart, and then in the world around us because we act out the pain of our own mental torments, that we blast somebody or, you know, neglect somebody because we're hurting. But it, actually there's, uh, you know, there's so many places where the Buddha and the teachings refer to and, and really emphasize the need for understanding joy. It's really central. And it's actually like to challenge ourselves, especially when we get on retreats, because it's a real change in lifestyle and the body can hurt just because we're sitting a lot and, you know, we're conforming to a schedule and all these different routines that we might not be used to. And it can 
I don't know, at times at least feel um, almost inappropriate to ask, like, is it okay to feel happy here? Or is it just supposed to be a grind? I mean, even on a metta retreat, which the whole idea, you know, is that we're abiding in wholesome state of loving-kindness. But it's really useful, like, to get interested in a, a happiness, a pleasure that's trustworthy. And I, I would feel fortunate that from the very beginning I just had some intuition. It's like I was really drawn initially to Buddhism, as I think Kamala mentioned last night. Um, a lot of us I think this is true for, because I was aware of suffering and unsatisfactoriness and death and just like things that our culture doesn't really explain very well. And I was interested, but who has something to say about what I was directly experiencing? And I found the Buddhist teachings had a lot to say that aligned with my own experience. It felt really like a sigh of relief and like I could trust these teachings because they spoke to my own experience. But we also want to uh, like, learn to acknowledge there are moments of joy and I have to have an honest relationship with the moments of joy. And really, it's interesting, you know, we don't really understand things until we start to have a vocabulary. The concepts, the vocabulary helps us get organized, like there's the happiness of having ice cream, assuming you like ice cream, or some ordinary sense pleasure, like really practicing well, and then being able to go to bed <laughs> at 9.30 or whenever you go to bed. And just that, oh, I get to put the body down, the body gets to rest now. How sweet is that, right? And that's an ordinary sense pleasure. Or maybe you really like the suit. And like, oh yeah, that's a nice sense pleasure. Or you like to sit on the couch by the gas heater in the dining room. Or you like to look at the trees. Maybe you're one of those people who like moss. <laughs> you know, and just the greenness and the rain. and It's like the whole forest comes alive. Especially because it's been relatively dry this year. I understand. Yeah, and it's like we, people are suspicious of happiness, isn't that strange? Suspicious. I, I was going to read it, I had to take some things out of the talk, but there's a book by, um, it's really from interviews with Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama talking together and somebody listened in on their conversation and turned it into a book. And it's something like the Book of Joy. And. Uh, at the very beginning of that book, the Dalai Lama, if you don't know, Desmond Tutu was the head of the Episcopal Church, I think, in South Africa, and just a bundle of joy, actually, besides seeing it on videos, I, I heard a talk of his once uh, when he was speaking in Berkeley, California, and uh, yeah, he's just, a, a, like the Dalai Lama, you know, just has that bubbly, irresistible, sort of joy. And, you know, both the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, most of their life, they've been part of a very painful, difficult struggle. And it's just all the more impressive. Or when you're around someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, which I've been able to do a little bit in my life. And, uh, you know, again, he's somebody who's really in touch with enormous suffering of his people, the Vietnamese people. And yet he just seemed really relaxed and happy when you observe him. I once, there was, uh, I was out of Plum Village and, uh, and we were having some event in one of the little hamlets. There's sort of several monasteries, they call them hamlets, uh, within a couple of miles of each other because it's a pretty big community there. And we were visiting one. And this is a, like a three-week retreat for experienced practitioners. And 
And this was the newest one, and I was sort of wandering around, everyone was sort of sitting in the meditation hall. I was like, I'm going to check this place out. <laughs> wandering around, wandering around, following these, in these old farm buildings, you know, that they've converted and renovated. I turn a corner, and just as I turn the corner, Thich Nhat Hanh is coming out of the bathroom. And he had evidently, just from looking at him, thrown some water on his face. You know, he's in the middle of 700 people being responsible for all these people. He'd been in the bathroom, thrown some water in his face, and he comes out of the bathroom, you know, and he just looks so refreshed and happy. And he sees one of the other senior monastics as he comes out of the door. And I observe the two of them just catching each other's eyes. They don't really say anything to each other. But it was just like, just the happiness of them seeing each other, it was just so apparent. Like, they were delighted, delighting in each other. And it was just like a really powerful moment, just that I got lucky to see, just, oh. And it's a challenge to us, like, part of our response when we hear a talk about joy is like, yeah, I'll be ready when the moment's ready. It's sort of, we always put the blame on the moment. I'm ready, but somehow nature's not delivering moments that are worthy of joy. You know, it's damp, I'm tired, or whatever. You know, on and on again. And just looking for these little places. <laughs> I think I was telling somebody in, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation just about, like, learning. It took a while, you know, because it seems like feeding the cat should be a chore. Maybe, did I mention this the other night? Yeah, it seems like, you know, taking care of the cat, feeding the cat, whatever, should be a chore. But it's like such an available experience of joy. And, you know, for dinner we feed the cat a combination of these little uh, sardine chips, you know, made mostly of sardines, and then dried chicken, freeze-dried chicken, and freeze-dried turkey. And every jar, you know, the way it sounds, it's just like he delights, right? Because he, he, he recognizes what it looks like and the sound, and he can't, like, contain himself. <laughs> you know, and the little one with the, the sardines, you know, it just kind of rattles a little when you pour. And, and it's just, and then to put it down and to watch. You know, I really make myself stay there for a minute or so, because there's so much happiness in sensing the cat's happiness. And it's not rocket science, it's like these things are available. All you have to do is have a bird feeder, or any number of other ways to, uh, you know, make soup for your partner, <laughs> or whatever they might like to eat. And, and what's really shocking is uh, like, a little bit like we're discovering with metta, you know, it's such a beautiful way to live a life, to be remembering, to live with kindness and just leading with goodwill, as opposed to leading with grumpiness or irritation, which is, you know, more often our habit, or just disconnection. But what's really radical or shocking is like, why don't we like, why doesn't this occur to us? Why don't people talk about it? And sometimes people do, but it's, you know, somehow we don't believe them or we, we mistrust it. This is an example of people mistrusting. I mentioned this, I think Kamala Kendall knew about this, but I, brought, I just sort of shared this story I like from the uh, suttas, where uh, some monks overheard one of the elders near their place they were camping, or maybe they had a hut, and they overheard the person couldn't contain themselves and was saying out loud, which is sort of unusual, what bliss, what bliss. Mm -hmm. And the monks that heard this other senior monk or elder monk thought, oh, we know about you. You used to be part of a royal family, and you're probably not having a good time living out in the forest, living the monastic life, you're probably having fantasies about being back in the palace and 
having all the sense delights, we better tell the Buddha. So they did. <laughs> and the Buddha said, okay. He asked one of the monastics to go, asked the person to come, and then the person, of course, came. And the Buddha asked him to explain what was going on. And he said, uh, uh, the Buddha said, what compelling reason do you have in mind that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. <laughs> of course, the Buddha knew this was a perfect setup, right, for the teaching of the other monks. And he answered, when I was a householder maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now going, to, going alone to the wilderness, to the root of a tree or an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied, my mind like wild deer. This is the compelling reason I have in mind when going to the wilderness. I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. And then the Buddha sums up, which he often does after the sort of setup where he's using somebody's experience to make a teaching, and he, he responds in verse often, at least as it's recorded. And he said, From whose heart there is no provocation, and for whom becoming and non-becoming are overcome? This one, beyond fear, blissful, with no grief, is one even the Dewas can't see. And it's sort of a little bit of a paradoxical statement there. But I think the point is, it's like one is living as nature, the activity of nature, blending with nature. It doesn't stand out as somebody in the woods trying to become enlightened, trying to be good, avoiding being bad. But just the activity of nature, empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the way that's often said in the tradition, tradition is like even the devas, the angelic, refined beings, even them can't distinguish them because there's no selfing going on. And I really love that story. What bliss, what bliss. Yeah, so it's good, you know, why we're here and we, you know, so much, like when Kamala and I have been giving the instructions, you know, we have the person we're bringing to mind, or sometimes groups, and we have the phrase, the way that we're um, acknowledging <clears throat> the generosity of the goodwill. We use the phrase to help sense that, and then we often create a little pause so we can notice the sense of the heart, <clears throat> the good feeling. And remember, sometimes, you know, it feels like the heart's cracking open, you know, because it's been so closed or so, like a fist that's been closed a long time. And then we open it, it can hurt a little bit. But that still feels good, even if it feels like it's cracking open or we're just aware that how held the heart is. That even feels good. It's better to know than to not know. It's, because on some level, we wisdom intuits, this is on the way, this is in the right direction. Knowing that the heart is guarded, armored, closed down, afraid, creates the opportunity to care about it and to be with it and to sort of water it with this sort of wholesome attention. In a way, um, I think it was Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers, said, you know, it's like uh, sometimes, you know, we bring a person to mind, we say the phrase, and it's like a drop of water hitting red-hot metal. <laughs> right? But if we keep at it, 
something changes, right? That red-hot metal isn't so red-hot anymore, one drop at a time. And that's the thing, like, even if the felt sense of metta, there's not that radiant joy of goodness that maybe we can experience in moments. But we stick with it because we have some faith, some confidence that the heart is capable of opening in a natural, whole, radiant way. Maybe it's a distant, distant memory, or maybe it's even borrowed faith, because people see or sense that goodness in us, right? And we have a good friend. I mean, that's really, in a way, that's a good definition of a good friend. Somebody who sees, senses our goodness and doesn't forget our goodness even when we're being a jerk <laughs> or being kind of unwise. You know, they, they know, they don't forget that capacity. And that's part of what metta practice and joy practice is about, is keeping that in mind. The Dalai Lama, I don't know where I heard this or read this, but he once said of mudita, this appreciative joy, that it increases your odds for happiness I think when I first read it, it was like six billion to one, because the world's population, now it's getting close to eight billion people. So, because anybody having a little success, a little ease, a little happiness, is something to appreciate. It's actually a cause for happiness. So when you see somebody who's walking, and for whatever reason they seem serene and happy, Take a moment to be happy for them. You know, or you see a salamander or a banana slug, especially now that it, there's some more moisture, they kind of had the run of the place. <laughs> Even the gravel pathways aren't a problem for them when it's this wet, right? And it's like, mudita. You know, may this happiness you have continue, may it increase, may it never end. Now we know things are going to keep changing, but that wish is very generous that that happiness continue and increase and never end. It's not about being realistic. You know, that it's, a, it's really understanding what the right medicine is in any moment. Is this the moment where I need to bring to mind the unsatisfactoriness of things to sort of appropriately tamp down lust gone wild, yeah, then, then it might be really useful to remember, Mark, remember, things arise and then they pass away. This won't always be this way. Right? But sometimes the appropriate medicine to keep the heart in balance is to really allow that wholesome delight in what is beautiful and good. And we only learn this by practicing, keeping it in mind, and just learning how to relate to joy, how to hold it. Like maybe you remember when I read that passage the other night from Gwendolyn Brooks, where she released the mouse and then realized how good it was not to kill the mouse that she had caught in the trap. Why, I'm good. <laughs> and just even hearing a passage from a novel like that you know, we can appreciate that human experience. That could be, it's like contagious. That's the idea, is that because in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teachings, what is the proximate cause for the development of samadhi? It's happiness. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, one of the nice things about uh, having one-on-one -on -one interviews with people like who have uh, where the mind just sort of drops in to uh, a deeper state of concentration. And then you just ask some questions and help the person understand the supporting causes and conditions that were there naturally that allowed the mind to drop in. And often what the person will remember, maybe not before, but then with a little prompting, we'll remember there was a wave of happiness. 
And because of that wave of happiness, joy, the mind dropped in. And I remember one just simple example, you know, in the middle of a long retreat, this is uh, when Kamala was probably, I'm sure was one of the teachers there for that three-month retreat. Um, in the late 90s, Kamala was often one of the three-month teachers, and I did several of those three-month retreats then. And uh, one, I just was walking, I think it was after the evening Dharma talk, and then there's that walking period before the last sit of the, the last group sit of the evening. And I had probably been in my room and I was walking through the dining hall and it was just seeing the folks and just sensing everyone doing the best they can. It's like I didn't have my aversion lens on, you know, I had my appreciative joy lens on. And I just saw like the sincerity, and I wasn't trying to see anything, it was just there. And it was like the whole heart just opened and settled in a really powerful way. And I was just sort of walking through the dining hall. But it was the conditions were right. And uh, the last straw for the opening and the dropping was simply the joy of appreciating the community of my fellow retreatants practicing well, doing their walking practice, doing their sipping tea practice, <laughs> you know, being silent together, not rushing, being in, in this harmonious community with me. I was so grateful and appreciative. And that wave of gratitude and appreciation was just the last ingredient that the mind needed to really drop into a more profound place of stability, where everything comes alive and practice becomes effortless for a while, until the mind wants more of that, <laughs> or gets greedy, which is not uncommon. Right? That can be the shadow. Like even with Mudita, Kamala has been talking about the near and far enemies, of these Brahma-viharas, these beautiful qualities of the heart. Well, interestingly, the near enemy, maybe you can almost guess, is that identification with the, the joy, that exuberance, getting identified. So it's not about appreciating what's beautiful and good, it's about, in a sense, indulging in the joy, trying to Feed. There's somebody trying to feed on the joy. And of course, then it goes away. <laughs> because somebody trying to feed on joy is not a cause for joy. It's a cause for suspicion. Like, is there enough of it? <laughs> How can I get more? That's not a cause for joy. That's a cause for tension. Right? And we learn that usually the hard way. <laughs> Where we have a little joy in life and practice. And then we observe how it gets spoiled by wanting it to last. And of course, the far enemy of appreciative joy, right, like the opposite, is when we feel like it's rational or appropriate to demean others. It's like somebody's happy. <laughs> the, the funniest story of this is, comes from Carol Wilson. This she told a long time ago, several decades ago, but it's it's funny, and she told it in a public talk, so I'm assuming it's okay to share, but uh, she, this is the early days, and some of the Dharma teachers now were staff back then, like Carol Wilson, I think Guy Armstrong, and Steve Armstrong, and Michelle McDonnell, uh, and maybe some others who are now senior teachers. But anyway, somebody on staff had fallen in love and Carol was with her friend, whoever that was, and saw the two people in love. And Carol just remembers herself thinking, and I think saying to her friend, it's probably not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what we do. It's such a good example. It's just like, like the world needs a critical, discerning mind, because otherwise <laughs> everything's going to fall apart if we don't sort of lay the truth out there. And it's probably true, it probably didn't last, whatever it was. It wasn't like it was an inaccurate summation of romance, 
you know, it lasts for a while, and then it tends, and certainly the romance didn't last, even if the relationship did, because it doesn't generally last very long. There's a particular sweet stage, you know, that sometimes we're fortunate to be in with another human being, that sort of blossoms like a rose, and then it does what roses do. (laughs) Unless it's fake, you know, and it just looks that way for a long time. And just to sort of realize, like, you know, to use that as a teaching story, I really appreciate, like, oh yeah, that's what we do. And as opposed to saying, it's really sweet when you fall in love. It's such a sweet time when you're just seeing the good in the other person and you're sensing that they're seeing the good in you and both are delighting in each other's, you know, the good things that we see in each other. That's a very special, sweet time that isn't worth building a self on, or a life on, because like everything else, it comes and goes. But it doesn't make it not sweet. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho, in his sort of dry way, he's uh, again one of our senior teachers, monastic teachers in our early Buddhist Theravada Buddhism here in the West, and he wrote, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty, If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. (laughs) Right? I mean, these are actual teachings, or practices. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. Right? It's like a skillful means. When it's the right medicine, then it's a skillful means. When it's not the right medicine, then it's not a skillful means. Right? And he goes on and says, yeah, if you're cultivating the perception of the three characteristics, seeing the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and the impersonal nature of phenomena, it can be very useful to cultivate those kinds of perceptions. But it can leave the impression, now I'm reading again, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then one finds that one enjoys, delights in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. And it's really like mudita in a way is the outer expression of what we find when we learn that joy of seclusion. And like I was describing, you know, that opposite of a panic attack, you know, just how the heart settles. I mean, basically, the movement towards jhana is to be interested in more and more refined joy. And even, like, even when there's a lot of joy in the mind, the mind really appreciates that joy. But the wisdom in, let's say, concentration practice is naturally interested. Like, this joy is really wholesome. It's really good worthy of being aware of, worthy of just sort of uh, bathing in, you know, they use the word, the translation is sometimes to suffuse, to pervade the body, heart and mind with this good feeling of tranquility, of ease, right? But But wisdom is, can this be even more beautiful, more refined? It's not greed, it's actually just a an actual curiosity, like, is this the nth degree of that inner joy? And it's that natural curiosity that just allows the dropping in to more and more refined places. But we can do the same, I mean, different, opposite, not opposite, but uh, in an outer way. You know, we, we see the obvious places where there's joy and goodness, but are we seeing all the joy and goodness that can be perceived? Like the little exercise we did, 
you know, maybe you saw somebody sitting that they just looked really happy, but did we see all the causes for happiness, all the beauty and goodness in the, in the room? And you can see very quickly, like, there's really no end. And it's not, if it's in the not knowing this and knowing how to do this that we end up getting really out of balance. I mean, imagine if we really develop this skill of seeing the good, appreciating the good, how useful it would be in dealing with the inevitable times of feeling heavy and depressed and anxious and afraid. Like, because if that's all we're paying attention to, it, it gets really scary. <laughs> Sylvia Borstein, and she's just one of those people that can come up with really pithy, wise uh, statements. And one of them is, uh, we have to learn how to stop scaring ourselves. And it's such a great, clever summation of the spiritual path. Right? That's a, a very creative way, one way, of understanding what we're doing. We're learning how to stop scaring ourselves. Why do I do that? And it's a karmic act, like what we pay attention to leaves an impression on the heart, on the mind stream. It matters what we pay attention to. So what are we going to pay attention to? And we learn that like in, in the work that we've been doing with metta practice, like how we remember the person. Who do we, what location do we remember them? What are we keeping in mind? What phrase, how do I hear that phrase being repeated? Am I saying it with a grumpy voice? Got to say it again? <laughs> you know, how, all that matters. And this is like from that introduction of that book by Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, the, the really uh, powerful statement right at the beginning is you think something like, this is a rough paraphrase, you think happiness, joy, depends on the world, but it really depends on your mind. Like what you're paying attention to, how you're paying attention. And initially we have to take that on borrowed faith. You know, we hear it like from the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, but hopefully, you know, they have enough authority about happiness that we're willing to check it out. Or the Buddhist words. We have enough confidence. Some of what he said is checked out in my own experience. I'm going to check out what he says about mudita, about appreciative joy. If I train my mind instead of demeaning others, as if there's a scarcity of happiness, and if I appreciate your happiness, there's not going to be anything left for me. <laughs> Sharon Salzberg in her book, remember I mentioned that wonderful book that came out a while back on Loving Kindness by Sharon Salzberg. And she shares a story in that book about being in Burma practicing, probably with Saida Pandita. And uh, Saida had given her the practice to imagine people you find difficult uh, being praised. Right? <laughs> just like, what does that do for you? <laughs> and she, she goes on and shares like when she was doing metta practice and someone like Kamala tells us to train ourselves to bring a difficult person to mind and see if we can realize that this person is worthy of our good wishes, right? And so Sharon had to choose somebody and there's a, you know, there's some sense in the tradition that when you're like on a longer retreat, in a way that Sharon was probably on a longer retreat and developing some real concentration, that even when you bring the difficult person to mind, there's some real power in your goodwill that can actually benefit. And then and Sharon was just realizing, again, just this really appreciating how teachers share these silly places we get to in practice, caught herself thinking like, does this difficult person like, or this person I have difficulty with, that's a great change. <laughs> Does this person I have difficulty with, with deserve 
my powerful goodwill. (laughs) I don't know. That's why they're in the difficult category. I don't think so. And then she remembered, she caught herself, of course, but just that, like being stingy with our goodwill. And we should laugh, just like we did, like, oh, how silly is that? Because it really comes from that stingy place, like, because it does feel like there's not that much happiness and joy in the world. So when we start to have a sense that it might be available, we, you know, at least I notice this in myself. It's like, I have, you know, both of my parents grew up in farms uh, during the 30s, late 20s and 30s, so the Dust Bowl in the upper Midwest, and times were tough, you know, in the Depression, even probably better for a lot of, than a lot of people being on a farm, because they could grow their food and stuff. But still, pretty rough. So they they had this deep imprint about being stingy, and being the continuation of my parents. I have that, you know. I'm, I'm a pretty stingy. I've got that imprint or that kind of condition, and I noticed that too around happiness. And I I found the practice of mudita really one of the most potent of the four Brahma Viharas. Just really taking time to notice joy or cultivating the interest. And I really like, I think I got these phrases from Guy Armstrong when he was teaching Mudita somewhere, and I was there, that I mentioned earlier, may this goodness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And you can use a little Mudita at the end of a walking or sitting where you were doing your metta practice, and just the sense of you doing the metta, the sense of everybody else doing the metta, and just appreciating how good it is that we have Cloud Mountain, all the volunteers, all the donors, the um, Laura and her partner who have taken care and stewarded this place for so long, all the teachers, all the teachings, what a... and then us here Continuing in that, this is good. May this goodness continue. May it increase, may it never end. That's not such a stretch. And just really taking a moment to feel the joy of being able to do what we're doing and to be part of what we're doing here. As opposed to, okay, one more sit down. How many more? I've got Tuesday morning, Tuesday after Tuesday evening, Wednesday... (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of what we can do when, you know, we're hyper-focused on the pain in the knees or on missing our kids or partner or dog or whatever it might be, or bed. It really matters what we pay attention to. So I'll just end by reading a poem I have a couple of fun ones, but I'll just do one. This is uh, somebody in our community recently passed away, and uh, she was a wonderful person, really impactful person. Last part of her career, even as she was struggling with cancer, she was a family court judge and really wanted to change the nature of family court from being this adversarial you know, one side versus the other in a divorce or around who gets the kids and that kind of thing, to like, what would family court look like if it was based on love? Anyway, this is a poem from her brother who's a writer and in part talking about her cancer and uh, just about Mudita in a a roundabout way. So it's called Stage Four and the uh, author's name is Mick Cochran. Now I believe in everything. Aromatherapy, peppermint, and sandalwood, and lavender, and especially frankincense, because you know the three wise men. Mindful breathing, I believe in that too. Mindful eating, mindful walking, mindful anything at all. Incense and holy water, especially when my grandmother sprinkled it on our car before a long trip. (laughs) The power of positive thinking and the wisdom of expecting the worst. Eerie coincidences and anniversaries, 
plant-based proteins, antioxidants, micronutrients, and superfoods, ground flaxseed under oatmeal, cutting-edge pharmacology and computer-assisted surgery and gene therapy, also talk therapy and shock therapy, and art therapy and therapy dogs and therapy horses, <laughs> bibliotherapy and emotive therapy, both rational and irrational. I believe in church basements and all the steps. They were both really into the 12 steps. I believe in church basements and all the steps, not just the 12 famous ones, every slogan. And I especially believe in that guy in St. Paul who used to say, F your bad day, work the program. <laughs> I believe in St. Christopher and St. Anthony, John and Paul, Cosmas and Damien, the Buddha and the Dalai Lama and Satchel Page, who knew that fried foods angry up the blood. And I believe in my friend Ron, whose only advice to, for his children was, always stop at a lemonade stand. Doesn't matter where you're going, who's waiting for you, or how late you are. You pull over, get out of the car, take it all in, savor the sun on your face, the sweetness on your tongue, this little kid watching you drop a 20 in her jar. <laughs> right? That would be a moment of mudita. Just that smile or wonder or awe in the child's face, <laughs> if you have $20 to spare. Let's just let the words go away, sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.